Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to Signal, a podcast powered by Consensus, where we will be sharing the most captivating stories and interviews from Web3 insiders. Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited for today's conversation. We have with us today Marie Flamand, who is the CEO at the Near Foundation and also a fantastic fintech entrepreneur and operator. So we're going to learn a ton about all sorts of business structure, fintech strategy, and of course, Web3 protocol strategy. So I'm really excited for today's conversation. Marik, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me here. Looking forward to the conversation. You've done so many exciting and high-profile things, but I want to get us kind of acquainted a little bit with your values and what drove you to make some of the choices that led you to the decisions around you know, joining Circle, joining Metal, joining Near. And that often comes through in people's uh, kind of DNA in their early career. Can you talk a little bit about how you started out, what it is that you were focused on, and what were the types of things that really motivated you early on in your journey? I mean, if we if we start from the beginning, actually, I spent a lot of time in my childhood moving around and living in different countries. So one of the fundamental value that has been uh, and a driving force throughout my career is actually this idea that if you live in different countries or if you see different things, culture and, and languages and, and the way people see the world is different, is different everywhere. So that's one, one fundamental piece. Then as a student, I actually, I'm a, I'm a computer science engineer. So I studied engineering at Telecom Paris in France. And then very early on, actually realized that while it's an engineering school and we were learning about coding and developing, I realized that I loved the tech, but I was never going to be a very strong or very good developer. You know, some, sometimes you can see that you're more attracted to other pieces of the puzzle. And for, for example, for me, it was more this idea of what's business? How do you drive actually adoption of, of technology? And so early on, I had a, an opportunity to actually go and finish my studies in China, in Shanghai. That was 2004. It was still early, you know, <laughs> when I look at it now, I think it was, you know, it was a bit crazy because at the time, communication lines between, you know, leaving France and going to China were not necessarily the same. A lot of the platforms we know today didn't exist. But nevertheless, so I did that. I went to, I went to China. I learned Mandarin. I finished my computer science degree in information security in Shanghai. And then I was on the hunt for, for a job. I wanted to stay in China because I loved the culture, the, the vibe, this, this constant thinking of everything is possible. That's one of the value that I learned uh, in China, this relentlessness of finding solutions and, and having a sense that problems have solutions and you can find a way through them. I found a job, I would say more by luck, but extremely lucky. Actually, I, I worked for LVMH, the luxury giant conglomerate in their IT department to start with. And so I was very early on exposed to the power of storytelling and the power of actually brands, but also the power of small, nimble teams, right? Because one of the core fundamental value of the LVMH group is actually having a lot of very independent brands uh, that, are, that are remotely operated by very strong local leaders. So that was quite formative. And then I actually had an opportunity to work for a fantastic mentor who was based in Hong Kong, who was leading the, the financial department for LVMH. And so I did that and I retrained myself completely, right? Because I went from being a, you know, IT project manager to basically becoming a financial analyst and, 
and not, you know, learning, uh, having to learn what is a PNL, what's a balance sheet on, on the ground. So I would say, you know, do things, this idea of like culture, retrain, what is technology? How can small, nimble teams work together? That started to make a, a narrative and a sense. But one thing I also realized quite early on in my career was that I, I didn't understand business, actually. You know, when you're trade as an, as an engineer, you see the world of like problem solving, but you don't necessarily understand more fundamental pieces of how to run a business. You know, what are economics, what's finance, what's a business plan, what's a strategy, and so on and so forth. I'm going to give you a frustrating question. What is business? When you say to know business, what is that? A business is a composition of different angles and different aspects, right? So a business is who are your customers? What's the problem that you're solving? How are you actually making revenues? How are you getting your customers? What's the composition of the team that you need to actually make that successful? So it's all those pieces and elements for me that I would say like that's business. I learned also more elements of like business back in business school. Getting out of business school, I did something that I think most students in business school do. I went into strategy consulting. Again, learned a ton around like, you know, strategy. What is it? How do you actually advise companies and how you think about putting in place strategic plans? I did that in Paris, although I was traveling again a lot, like covering a lot of ground and in different international companies. And then I worked for Expedia, so travel industry, you know, which matches a lot of my of my passion. I was exposed to phenomenal leadership, but also the power of technology and how to think go to market and how to think marketing with different channels and how to think very data driven with a very data driven approach on on all of that. So that was super interesting. And I was headhunted in 2015 for Circle, which, you know, at the time, at the time, I, I didn't know anything about Bitcoin. I didn't know anything about blockchain. And I remember perfectly when the headhunter called me and he said, hey, there is a startup in Bitcoin. They're looking for someone. And my first reaction was like, well, you know, hell no. <laughs> you know, the Bitcoin press was so bad that my immediate reaction was like this, you know, this is for drug dealers. So I'm not I'm not doing that. And I'm lucky because the headhunter insisted and he said, please read the brief. And then I read the brief and I understood that actually, you know, there were blockchain, there was cryptography, there was like so many things that this could unveil. And so I, I worked for Circle. I was for I worked for Jeremy Allaire for over three years, which was a phenomenal learning experience. What does Circle look like in 2015, 2016? Because you know, there's no USDC, there are no stable coins. It's a very different moment. There's no Ethereum yet, really. There's no Web3. It's just like how many Litecoin clones can people launch and so on. So can you describe what you stepped into and what were the operating components of that business? Yeah, so what I stepped into was Circle at the time had a product called Circle Pay, which was peer-to-peer -peer sending and receiving money, not only fiat, but also to start with only, only Bitcoin. And that product was actually, if you think of it, it was like Venmo, but on steroids, right? The global completely global Venmo. And the beauty of that app was that just knowing someone's email address or phone number, you could actually send them money. So the first vision was, and, and I think that's one of the things that's actually extremely powerful, is the vision has stayed the same, which is like, with crypto and tokenization, we can basically rethink how money moves around. But the different products that have been, you know, led to the past where, where Circle is at today was were a bit different. So yeah, so the first app that what I stepped into was I think a team of like something like maybe 
50, 60 people. 95% of those were in the US. Very few people in Europe, I think maybe a handful of folks that were in Dublin because we had a small operation there. And then a product, which was Circle Pay, which was looking at how can we do things that are peer-to-peer. That was the first iteration. And then from there, we actually grew Circle Pay a lot and significantly we iterated the product itself also because so back then I remember you know when we were pitching the product and it had Bitcoin in it people just didn't understand and the, the press around Bitcoin was so negative that it was actually almost like a, why would you have that in the app and and I remember you know especially having debates with you know friends but also like for example on the UK market where we were trying to drive adoption and ultimately it was not seeing Bitcoin that made people feel comfortable with engaging with the app, right? Which was, it was completely different world. So if you imagine that today it would be, <laughs> would be quite different. And I think people would probably be more attracted to the fact that there's Bitcoin. But anyway, so that was, yeah, those were the operations back then. There was also, I remember like a brokerage arm, right? Like there was a trading app functionality. It was quite a couple of different concerns that Circle was trying to stand up. So that came after, right? So then we went into different other products, right? So we made a, an aqua hire of a team and had a product which was called Circle Invest, which I think things has been sold. There was the acquisition of one of the first exchange, Poloniex. We had also a OTC trading desk because when you start actually managing so many flows of cryptocurrency, then that business also made sense. And as you said, right back then, like early, early days, Ethereum was not even there, which I remember actually the, you know, the birth of that and, and you know, the conversations that we were having in the company and thinking through how is that going to change everything and how then we started thinking through tokenization of everything and, and what does it mean for other industries and, and so on and so forth. But it was, it was basically you know, a suite of different products, which then also led to actually the creation of USDC because the realization through that of Sean and Jeremy, which I think is is phenomenal. When I look back, I, I also remember reactions of like thinking through a stable coin, why would we do that? And actually today in hindsight, it looks like it's genius. <laughs> but, you know, again, when you were, when you sat there, it was not that obvious, right? That, that was where like the big bets that would basically drive the entire company, but also the entire industry moving forward. It's fascinating stuff. Were you there through the sort of simplification and then consolidation of the business? Yes. Yeah. So I stayed until early 2019. And so a couple of things were happening back then, right? One was actually the the crypto market was, you know, had a first like, you know, It was drop. not good. <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> uh, you know, that's also one thing that's been very formative, right? It's learning through how fast things can go really bad. And, and, you know, and having this sense of like, okay, you need to adapt. And therefore, you know, what do you keep? What do you actually, uh, what do you kill in terms of product? And, you know, as a company also, we refocused more from B2C to much more B2B in terms of lines of products and so on and so forth. So that's the consolidation that happened actually, like going to what that we should focus on and, and basically where is also where is also the line of revenue, right? Where are the revenue coming from? Which geographies should we focus on? Yeah. And so forth. Gotcha. Yeah, that was, I think, a moment of sharpening the diamonds in a lot of different places. Where did your career take you after Circle and how are you looking around? What decisions were you making then? 
Yeah. So after Circle, basically, I was looking for, you know, what do I do that, you know, is different or how to basically find a new a new path forward. And actually, I was, uh, again, headhunted for this time for NatWest. So very different, like working within a, within a very large bank. And it's not creative because the project was already kickstarted, but it was basically making a neo bank within a large bank. And I have huge admiration and respect actually for a leader like Alison Rose, who is one of the few women, you know, leading a, leading a very large bank. And when I was working with her and, and thinking through strategy and the vision that she had for trying to create within a large bank, uh, a neobank, I thought, well, that could be also very interesting. Full disclosure, also, I, I was a new mom. So I thought, okay, you know, traveling so much when, when kids are tiny, maybe not, maybe not necessarily a, a good idea. And so NatWest is also something that's very UK focused. And so something that felt I could lead and, and take on. And so I joined Metal and there is a thread here, which I joined Metal similar size as when I joined Circle. It was a team of roughly 50 people, but a team mostly of actually contractors. And so I had to basically professionalize that, right? And say, how does this become really properly a company? How do we build the team and the structure? How do we scale from this? How do we actually interact with the bank? And, and what does it mean to innovate within a large corporation? The focus of Metal is actually freelancers, sole traders. So a theme around working nine to five and the way we work, and it, it, that's changing, right? So they, therefore, for that, you need to have a different, a different bank and something that's much more attuned to people's ways of working of today. Let me double click on this idea, right? Because I think there's some interesting and difficult fintech insights here, which is that, okay, so you take NatWest or, you know, we can take JP Morgan or we can take Goldman Sachs, right? So each one of these has launched Goldman's Got Marcus, JPM had a couple of neobanks now, open, shut, open, shut. There's a question of, well, why? Especially, you know, I had a seat for a while that was analyzing these public companies and putting a fintech innovation lens on top and trying to rank them and understand their performance on being able to do that innovation. And so the question is, and a lot of banks say this defensively, mostly to people that own their shares, they say that, you know, we already have this massive distribution. We already have the scale and the products. And so why do these companies need these new faces? Why do they need neobanks? What does it even mean to have a neobank for a very large retail bank? Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic question. So yes, banks say we have, you know, very large distribution and we have millions of customers. And and the way banks operate is very often thinking through a product, right? So it's almost like this, I it's a given that I have an audience and therefore which products can I basically push to my audience, right? And so it's like a very... Well, surely people are going to need a lending product and a you know credit product, and therefore it's like a very product minded, but without thinking about the customer. And where fintech are actually brilliant is flipping it, is saying, okay, who's the customer? What's the job to be done? What's the problem to solve? And therefore around that, how do I bring and build a brilliant product? But it's flipping it, right? It's like you start from the customer. Who is it? What's the problem? And, and what do you need to do? And it sounds, it sounds maybe like, a, you know, not that different way of operating, but it's fundamentally different because if you operate in a world where you say, I have a huge, large user base and therefore I'm going to push product on them, then the way you structure your organization is very different from if you say, well, 
who's my customer, what are the jobs to be done, and therefore what's the product I need to build to serve the needs of my customer. And so innovation and, for example, metal, the way I build metal and the way it was built was basically to say, well, what are the jobs to be done? What are the functions that we need to do to focus on serving the needs of our customer? What's our tech stack, therefore? And how do we constantly stay nimble around our customers? And so ultimately, it means that your go-to market is different. The way you structure your team is different. The tech stack that we that we have is completely different. And then the brand and the how you interact with customers is going to be totally different. So, you know, that's why very often you, you, you find large banks who continuously try to, you know, innovate and shift and, and improve the tech stack and improve the ways of working and so on and so forth. But it's much, much, much harder to do that if you already have like a, you know, legacy tech and legacy people structure rather than actually saying, well, what if we start from scratch, right? What if we actually start on the side, leverage the best of what we have in a large bank, which is actually a lot of knowledge around crime and anti-money laundering and KYC and KYB and, and all the stuff that is boring but is well or sound boring but is extremely important. And if you can match that with actually innovation and different ways of doing things, then then you can actually get somewhere. Let's pick a different bank then, because I don't want to put you on the spot with metal, but let's say in the abstract there's a retail bank and in the abstract they have a consumer facing digital offering. Do you think it will work? Do you think it is sufficient defense against the chimes and revolutes and cash apps? Do you think it's sufficient defense to do, you know, like digital transformation and corporate venture and setting up a new brand? You know, it looks like it's sort of working for Goldman. And then if I think about asset management, like it's sort of working for Schwab, maybe. In general, what's your sense for how strong of a strategic response it is for the mega banks to create essentially these niche distribution solutions? Well, so I think one thing that it actually does is that it can act as a catalyst within the larger organization, right? So, and that's often, it's it's less seen, right? But what happens and what you see in a lot of those large banks that actually have the smaller innovation play is that then a lot of the features of the smaller innovation play can be taken and, and done in the larger organization. So it's almost like a test bed. And then culturally, what starts happening is also you have, it can help attract talent. So you can, with the innovation arm or like the smaller venture, attract a totally different type of talent, which then can actually by, you know, trying to break boundaries or trying to do things differently, trying to think differently through culture through ways of working, it becomes, even if 10% of that only penetrates the larger organization, that's already, that can already be a win. Now, the bigger question for me is, you know, you mentioned like Revolut and, and there is Tide and Starling and so on and so forth. But there is also a bigger movement that's happening, right? Which is where I'm, I'm actually, you know, just questioning banks and roles of bank in, in the future. But when we think of crypto and when we think of actually the fundamental shift that we're seeing with, with Web3, the, the market is being redefined for what it means to actually interfere or interject or, or basically have assets from a customer perspective. And and sometimes some of the reaction that I see from large banks is just, well, we'll just shut down accounts of our customers if they if they actually start, you know, interacting with with crypto without, you know, without necessarily trying to go deeper than that. Now, I think that's extremely risky because, and I'm sure we're going to come on to that, but crypto is not just like crypto trading and crypto asset. Crypto is redefining how we work, how we engage, how we actually define and make, make a living and make our careers. So 
that like underlying movement, I'm more, you know, if I, if, you know, if I was in the bank of, in the shoes of a bank today or bank exec, I would be more trying to understand like, what is that going to be? Because if you start shutting down people who, you know, are just interacting with crypto, it could be that very soon you're left with no customers, right? So the fintech revolution that we've seen with the Revolut and the Tide and starting and so on and so forth, that's fine. But I think that's that's V1, right? And I think the tsunami of transformation that are coming, that are touching not just the finance world and how we actually interact with our finances, I think that is actually much more an underlying force that is not to be underestimated. Absolutely. Let's move from the fintech world back into the protocol Web3 world. Talk to us about your transition to Near, how that came about, and then maybe frame a little bit what Near is. Sometimes signals come and you're like, oh, maybe the world's trying to tell me something. So last, I think it was towards last summer or end of summer, actually the the, the board of NatWest and, and the team at NatWest were reached out also to say, hey, you know, CBDC, stablecoin, we're trying to we're trying to understand that and to rethink through that because I had been in the space before, you know, I helped and participated and, and you know, basically replunged myself into the whole world of what was going on in the hope to help actually educate, right? And to say like, this is, this is how things work. And if you look at history from Bitcoin to Ethereum and so on and so forth, and it's just not just about crypto currencies, it's, it's a larger, broader movement. So I was, you know, in addition to to leading metal and continuing to grow to grow the bank, but I was I was basically helping us on that front. And at the same time, actually, the near team reached out, and I hadn't heard of near at the time. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like, how come I've never heard about about them? Because if if what they say is true with the tech, then this is extremely powerful because, you know, when I was at Circle, we were talking already about tokenization of everything, but I think it's fair to say that it was probably too early, right? The, the concept was there and, and you know, Jeremy is, is a visionary, so he could see it and he was like, well, this is going to play out like that, but but the tech was just not ready. So no matter how much we were trying to find those use cases, they just didn't exist. And it was because the tech couldn't scale and it was still too expensive to run and not doing what we wanted it to do. So when the when the team at Nier reached out, I thought, oh, wow, if, if that tech is really there, which then in looking at it, I was like, wow, it, it is very easy to use. It is actually something that is uh, seamless. It is really cheap to run on. And the consensus mechanism is different. So, yeah, so that's when I, you know, started really looking back at that and I've been super impressed with the team, with the people I met, whomever it is from, from the ecosystem and, and the ambition level that there is also the long-term thinking. So if we take a step back, near protocol, near is a layer one protocol. So that's the family of things that that we you know play in and play play with. And as a protocol, the focus is on basically it's on three things. So one, it's simplicity. And simplicity is simplicity for end users, but also simplicity for developers. Simplicity for end users mean you know, stuff that you can understand, right? So for example, you can have an address which is lex.near or maric.near, right? You can have an address that's recognizable. You can actually embed near into Web2 apps in a way that is seamless. So for example, we are embedded with Sweatcoin. You don't see it, right? You don't see that it's actually powered by near. So that's the user simplicity. Simplicity for developers mean that actually as a developer, if you are not like Rust or Solidity Ninja Guru, then you can actually do 
JavaScript, right? Because there is you know, tens of millions of JavaScript developers. And so we believe that actually it's a must if you want adoption and mass adoption of tech to have something that the majority of developers can participate on. So that's the big angle of simplicity. And then scalability and security comes through. So near protocol is a proof of stake. A mechanism is not proof of work, which is what Bitcoin, for example, and Ethereum are. And so with proof of stake, you can basically engage in a different consensus mechanism that therefore triggers less energy consumption and is therefore more scalable because it's actually cheaper to run. And through sharding, which is basically splitting the network into different streamlines, if you wish, you can actually scale it infinitely. So the concept for a near protocol, it's not to have actually miners, but it's to have validators, right? And so validators own a certain number of tokens and therefore they can participate in the consensus mechanism. So that means that the, the network is cheaper to run, it's extremely secure, it's fast, and it's extremely fast to actually run applications on it. And ultimately, that gives us an opportunity to be sustainable, right? So sustainability and being carbon neutral is at the core of the entire ecosystem, but also, of course, the protocol. And so we work with South Pole, for example, as an organization to do that. So, you know, that's the near protocol positioning is that is simplicity, scalability, security, sustainability. And those are like the technical element of what it does. And the near foundation, which is the part I lead, is is a pebble within a very large ecosystem. And I'm sure we can come back on that. Thank you for that. It is true that NIR is a pretty fantastic protocol, very performant, great architecture, great bridging to other parts of Web3. One of the things that I think the industry is chewing through now, and you know, if you talk to venture investors and, and you talk to developers, one of these like recurring topics is just the multi-chain environment, like the connectivity through different bridges or atomic swaps or whatever it is. What's the answer? How do you think about you know, the internet of blockchains, the web of blockchains that right now is being built out? Because there are so many kind of fantastic solutions and scaling solutions and roll-ups and really kind of performant protocols that are coming online now after you know years of very hard work. How do you see the ecosystem structure bringing this together and sort of like what are the real vectors and forces that, that are gluing all of the different projects into a single whole? The way we think about that is like multi-chain world with bridges and connections. And ultimately, if you fast forward, so, okay, who knows if it's going to be, you know, is it going to be five major chains, 10, 20? Not sure, right? But this idea that actually chains are specific to, I think there's two elements that we're starting to see. One, there is a there is a use case element of certain chains are actually better for, for running certain things. So for example, near because of the simplicity for users, actually, it's a perfect use case for, for B2C use cases and, and mass adoption, right? So that's that's one thing. Certain other chains might be actually, you know, perfect for maybe extremely DeFi because, you know, I don't know, speed of transaction is is super, super important. Not that near is, is slow, it's also really fast, but maybe some chains are going to focus purely on that. It might be more difficult to interact with, right? So this idea like certain chains better for certain use cases. And then I think there's also another element, which is almost like geography, because chains are, and, and protocols, around protocols, you have communities 
And communities, no matter, even if we're a very global world, communities tend to gather through actually cultural elements, right? So like actually languages and, and interests that are in common. And so we're also starting to see that a little bit emerge, which is like, you know, what's the footprint of a certain, of a certain protocol in a certain geography? I think overall, from a user perspective, we're, we're really not there, right? I mean, I mean, on, on near Aurora, which is our EVM is absolutely fantastic. It helps actually bridge Ethereum and other chains to the near protocol. So that, that's great. But from a user perspective, it's still so confusing, right? You're like, okay, so this coin that I have, is this like, is it, you know, can I make it on that chain? If I take it on another chain, does it still work? Oh no, because it's a translation of it. So it's not actually the real coin. So I think that is like all super confusing. Same if you go into, you know, NFTs and, and we're starting to see a lot of like platforms that are multi-chain, therefore help you bring together your, let's say, NFT collection, because otherwise you have, you know, a collection here, a collection there, and like, and, and it's not like one thing that brings it all together. So there is still a lot of work to be done to make this like, again, seamless for end users. And I think that's the key, right? It's like when we get to a point where where, you know, we don't have to talk about layer ones anymore, but we talk about the, the use cases. I think that's real adoption, right? Today, we're still very, we're still very focused on like the tech and the difference and what it can do, but not yet like on these end user cases who are, which are seamless and then end users don't need to know what's the underlying technology and, and how it works. What are some of the coolest things that you are seeing being built on the protocol? Like what are, if NIR is an ecosystem and an economy, what are the things that to you are the most compelling? Or alternately, another way to ask this might be, what are the kinds of things that you'd like to see being built, you know, in addition to some of the usual suspects? In addition to usual suspects, I get always really excited when I see applications that are Beautiful. And what I mean by beautiful is like it's the user experience is seamless and it looks actually close to what we know in Web2. And so we do have projects around that that are very focused on making seamless user experience. For example, flipping on its head what Instagram is. There's a project called Uminter, which, you know, looks absolutely Stunning and again, super easy to use, but it's the idea to say, well, if you're an, if you're an influencer, you really own your picture and you really own your account. And so you, you change the paradigm of what you see in Instagram. I think that's, that's super interesting. I'm really excited by DAOs. I think, you know, on near you have Astro DAO, which is a platform, which is so easy to use to actually start creating DAOs, for example, for a small group of people or a larger group of people who want to start making decisions together. And so that I think is extremely powerful. I think there's a lot of figuring out how a DAO best work, like governance and who votes on what and, and how do you make sure you engage a member of the DAO and so on and so forth. It's, it's complicated, but I think that's actually so interesting for rethinking how we work and, and how we engage with what we actually are passionate about. I really like that. You know, we've been partnering with Orange DAO, which is a Y Combinator alumni DAO. And I think it's really super interesting to see people 
of common, you know, let's say common background or common storytelling, get together to make decisions together and to figure out, you know, on what they want to either invest or build or things like that. So I think DAO overall, super excited about. And then the last thing that I've been recently extremely impressed by is gaming. So on Near, we have a, a guild called Human Guild who helps basically foster a lot of the new games that we see. And so full disclosure, I'm not a gamer myself, but again, I'm very attached to actually how easy or, or beautiful or intuitive it looks like. And the, the newest level and engagement of games that I've seen is just, it's amazing. Like you, you know, again, as a user, you wouldn't see that it's necessarily on blockchain and on near, which I think is the, is the ultimate answer. That is definitely the point to make the gears of software invisible to us poor humans who can barely comprehend what's going on as it is. I often kind of bring up this example of like a person interacting with a social network like a TikTok or a Twitter or you know Facebook like it's just you versus against a gigantic robot, you know, that's been built by like thousands of people inside of an artificial intelligence company that then's been trained by billions of people across preferences, across millions of data points, you know, and it's like you think you're clicking on a photo, but no, you are inside of a giant mechanical artifact. And I think with blockchains, in some ways, we'll be breaking those machines. But in other ways, we're also building the gears underneath that we want people to use, but not necessarily be obsessed about. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other directions I wanted to explore with you was, you know, you had mentioned DAOs and human organization and community. And these patterns are just emerging in terms of how to organize the various economic and like business elements of a ecosystem versus a protocol or a lab versus the projects that are on it. So we've got the near protocol, which is generating, you know, computation and which is validated by various economic software actors. And then we've got the near foundation, which I'll ask you what it does. And so my question to you is, how do you think about the role of the foundation versus the founders and the core development team? What are the incentives like? And maybe underneath that, like, what is the problem that such industry structure is trying to fix? So if at the center of a picture, you have the near protocol, which is open source, on that protocol, as you've said, you can have different, you know, actors and participants and to help continuously develop what the protocol is and, and where it goes. And so for near in our ecosystem, what that means is that you would have, for example, players such as Aurora, which is our EVM. You'd have players such as Calimero, which is private shard. You'd have players such as Pagoda, which is Web3 tooling for entrepreneurs and so on and so forth. Right. So that's like, again, picture protocol open source. And then around that you have different actors and and different contributors to continuously evolve evolve the thing. Then if you look at the different actors, small or large, but that are participating in the ecosystem, you do have several things. So one, we actually have regional hubs, and, and I'll come back on that, but like regional hubs for us as, are so powerful because again, in a global world, there is nothing that replaces like local language, local community getting together, especially now that the world is reopening up, but like getting together as meetup, learning together, hacking together, like all that, nothing repra like replaces that in doing it locally. So regional hubs are, are 
you know, pebbles within the, the near ecosystem. Within our ecosystem also, we have guilds and groups that are focused on certain special thematics. So for example, Proximity Lab is focused on everything related to DeFi. Human Guild is focused on, on things that are related to gaming. We have ecosystem funds, which are VC funds that are focused on what are the companies that are being built in the near ecosystem, and those are actually in different geographies. And so the foundation is one pebble in an ecosystem that is growing every day and very rapidly. Today, you know, it's over 500 projects. It's over 500 active DAOs. Like, I mean, it's it's just continuously continuously growing with more and more engagements and more and more projects, which can be, you know, anything from, you know, DAO, NFT, gaming, DeFi, like anything that you can, as you can imagine. So within that ecosystem, the foundation does three things. One is we exist to help raise awareness of not only near, near protocol, but also like open web and web three, right? Because I think sometimes in the crypto community, we are in our, you know, we are in our bubble, we understand each other, but <laughs> the reality is there's a lot of jargon. The mainstream media is also, you know, not necessarily always playing favor to how, you know, what real things are happening. So I, I deeply believe we have a really big role of education. It's also really important for the next generation of students to understand actually what this technology is, because I believe everybody's career is going to be impacted by that, right? So to that effect, we have Near University, which is a program where whether you're a developer or an entrepreneur, you can start getting your hands into it and figuring out what this could mean for you. And then we also engage in strategic partnership, right? So for example, I mentioned earlier Sweatcoin, Orange DAO. We, we engage in like strategic partnership to bring to life real use cases, again, in a sense of like awareness and education. So that's one big pillar of what the foundation does. The second pillar is actually support. So how can we support entrepreneurs, founders, team who want to build on near, whether it's actually directly via our grant program or by actually directing people within our ecosystem on where they can get the best, you know, help. So if you're DeFi, then proximity is probably the right place to get to get that help. And the last pillar of what we do as a foundation is thinking through actually governance and external regulatory engagement. So not that, you know, this is only the foundation to do, but sometimes in, especially if ecosystems are early on in their journey, you need a forcing mechanism to, to kickstart off the conversation and to put that off the, off the ground. So for example, we are in an environment where regulation is constantly moving and changing and back to education, we can help, right? As a foundation, this narrative also of like, it's not just DeFi, it's also there's a lot in Web3. And I think it's actually a very positive thing for thinking how people will engage and work and so on and so forth. That narrative, we, we, we help a lot with. So yeah, so those are the three pillars and that's how the foundation fits as a pebble in a continuously growing ecosystem of things. I'm very interested in this topic because I think the shape of value creation not is changing, that's sort of like naive to say, but is flowing into a, a different set of responsibilities. And I think it's surprising for many people in our space, like where the value creation happens. And so you talked about learning business very early on in our conversation. I'm interested in the nuts and bolts, like you know, when you're managing the foundation, when you have your operator hat on and you're setting you know, the key performance indicators and you're setting numbers for people to hit, what are those metrics? What are those numbers? What does internal excellence quantitatively look like for managing a foundation on a layer one protocol? The way we think about it as a foundation is the North Star metric is actually weekly active engaged users, right? So 
uh, deepest belief is actually the vision and the mission is like, how can we actually build an environment and an ecosystem on which there are billions of engaged users, whether they know or not about the, the technology as we've talked about, right? So therefore, North Star metric, weekly active engaged users. And then the way we decouple that back to the, the three pillars and, and how we think about the role of the foundation, which is like awareness, support, and governance, the simplest flywheel that we came about with is like, well, you need talent, right? Number one is like at the, at the top of that funnel is like you need a humongous amount of talent and not just developers, but you need actually talent who understands economics and talent who understand marketing and talent who understand operations and so on. So you need, you need talent. So for that, we look at how can we bring half a million of active qualified students through the programs and the different programs that we have at the foundation. So that's the top of the funnel. And then that talent, ultimately, the belief is that if you have talent, they'll be, they'll build great projects. And so how can we actually ensure that the project that come have the support that they need and therefore become successful project? And to be successful, it's a hack, but you can look at two things. We believe one is actually you can look at active engaged users that the projects have, or you can also look at, is there external validation from maybe other funds that are backing that projects to help it grow and scale? So it starts with talent, then it goes into projects, and ultimately these projects, if they're the right one, will give you the active engaged users. And so that's how we think about our flywheel. And then at the center of that, we think, okay, governance, right? What are the things that actually what are the things as a foundation that you can and cannot do? Like, what's the, what's the, you know, how do you bring trust and help the ecosystem on that? You know, it's like in a Linux environment, like the Linux foundation is, you know, is a pebble of like stability and trust and so on and so forth. So we also think along those lines for, for the near foundation. So yeah, so those are the, the KPI that we track and that we monitor, you know, on a daily basis and that we basically go for. The real difficulty is that because it's so decentralized, and I hear that so much from the team, they're like, yeah, but what can we really control? And fair enough, you know, can we really control weekly active engaged users on the entire near ecosystem? No, we can't. But the when my deepest belief is actually, if you have a healthy North Star, then actually everybody's action goes into fulfilling that. So if you pick the wrong North Star, though, then everybody could be focused on, you know, something totally different, which is irrelevant and might just create just hype. And then you don't create underlying lasting value. So yeah, that's how we think about it. That's fantastic. And I know we're coming up on time, but I want to squeeze in one more very difficult question, which is, you know, when these metrics that you want to orient around, you know, even when you're doing a startup and you're doing a business, you know, when you're doing a neobank and you're thinking about deposits and users, or when you're, you know, you're marketing a payment app and you're thinking about flows, for a protocol, the industry-wide metric is engagement and apps and value locked and all these things. But because the goal is bigger, you're trying to create an economy, not a company, you're also in the winds of the market so much more. You know, and I found in a lot of the work that we do in consensus and then just through observation that there's a lot you can do in terms of kind of leaning into the boat, but then the waters around you tend to splash you around quite a bit. How do you think about the context of the market and the macro environment? You know, and are there things that you as the foundation or more broadly actors in the space are doing to try to create some anti-fragility relative to the broader context that we can't control? 
Yeah, and that's a, wow, that's a deep question. So a couple of things on that. I think you're right, right? There is like, number one, there's actually like the metrics that everybody follows or that the market is really focused on. And, you know, there is almost like a, a thinking through, well, that's how value is created. Now, I, I think if you really want to think long term, then you need to have the right long term metrics for that. So there is almost like trying to bring a change of narrative of what really matters. Now, I think in the broader economic context of what's happening right now, I think there is some fundamental shift in society that are absolutely fascinating to watch and to try to make sense of, right? So there is a, a conceptual sense around what is money that I think, you know, the, the conversation has been going on now for a couple of years, but I think it's never been so strong as it is today. And this concept of ultimately through COVID, governments have printed a lot of money, right? But so where does it come from? You know, where does it come from? And, and it links back to, okay, how is trust being built, but also like, why do we use money for? And I think that's where actually more broadly and generally speaking, crypto and crypto assets and crypto economies have a really interesting to play. Then linked to that, I think it's also interesting to think through, you know, central banks and, and treasuries that are being built and asset diversification that are happening currently in the central banks and, and probably a role increasingly bigger and bigger that in some governments and in some countries, cryptocurrencies are starting to take. So I think that's also another really interesting like macro thing that's happening. And then, you know, last but not least, but there is also like more the the overall general movement of where money is flowing, right? And and I think right now it's fair to say that there has been a lot of attention and a lot of capital flowing into the entire crypto space, which is which is fantastic because it's helping attract a lot of talent. It's helping builders build. It's basically helping push things forward much, much faster, right? Now, how much of that can continue at the scale as with it is versus will there be, you know, I've lived already, as we mentioned at the beginning, I've lived already through a first recorrection of a market and it's brutal, right? So will we see something else like that? And I think therefore that's why this idea of like thinking very long-term is super, super important, right? Because if you don't have that, you know, North Star thinking long-term through those very big macroeconomic things that are happening, whether it's actually COVID or Ukraine war or shift of globalization and, and role of central banks and so on and so forth. If you don't have like a long-term view of what good looks like, then I think if and when, you know, something happens, then then projects might not survive. So yeah, that's a bit of thoughts on a very deep question. <laughs> that probably could have been the entire podcast. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Fantastic answer. Really insightful conversation. If our listeners want to learn more about you or about NIR, where should they go? Go on NIR.org or you can find us obviously on Twitter at NIR Foundation or at NIR Protocol. Those are probably the best places. And then I'm also on Twitter, so Marie Flamand and otherwise on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. A big thank you to our listeners for joining today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Keep the conversation going by following us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Discord, all at Consensus. Reach out, ask questions, and suggest who you'd like to see featured in future episodes. To learn more about the topics discussed today, see our blog at consensus.net slash blog and subscribe to our weekly Signal newsletter. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music